I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on that note, I have the great pleasure of wishing everyone happy Constitution Day. On September 17, 1787, 39 members of the Constitutional Convention signed the new U.S. Constitution at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Here at the National Constitution Center, we are celebrating Constitution Day with a really thrilling launch. And I can't tell you how excited and happy I am to share with you a preview of our new interactive Constitution. This is an amazing educational tool. Uh, made possible by a generous grant from the John Templeton Foundation. And with the guidance of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, we have brought together the top scholars in America of different perspectives to write about every provision of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, describing both what they agree about and what they disagree about. This is the first time in America that these scholars have engaged in the project of uh, deciding what they uh, agree about and disagree about. And in addition to that, we have an amazing partnership with the College Board, which has decided to make the interactive Constitution a centerpiece of the new AP History and Government Curriculum. And with this incredible free online tool, which all of you can check out, and I hope you will as you listen to this show at constitutioncenter.org, uh, people across America will be able to have access to the best arguments on all sides of the constitutional questions at the center of American life so that they can make up their own minds. And joining me for the first time to explore this phenomenal new tool and to help uh, me share it with you are the two scholarly co-chairs of the National Constitution Center's Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board who helped make this remarkable project possible. They are thoughtful voices familiar to our we the People listeners. Richard Pildes is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at New York University School of Law. And Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz is Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center and Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. Rick and Nick, welcome. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here, Jeff, and congratulations on the launching of this project. Thank Delighted you. Delighted to be with you, Jeff. It's so exciting. So, Rick, you really helped uh, start this whole thing off by producing a model explainer, as we call it, about the 15th Amendment, and we use that to send out to various scholars so they would be able to uh, write their own explainers. You wrote it with Brad Smith uh, of the uh, Capital University uh, Law School. He uh, has a different uh, perspective, but just tell me, first of all, what was it like to write the common statement about the 15th Amendment? You and Brad have you know, disagreed in lots of places and in briefs and in print. Uh, how did you agree about what was settled about the law and history, and what was that process like? Well, it makes an enormous difference if you have uh, first-rate, uh, you know, academics and, uh, and people with academic uh, integrity working jointly on these projects. Uh, and so for me, working with Brad Smith was actually fairly easy because, uh, Brad is somebody that, uh, even though uh, he's disagreed with me and I've disagreed with him, uh, you know, I respect him. I think he respects me. And we are able to sit down with these explainers and give an honest account of 
the history of something like the 15th Amendment, which protects against racial discrimination in the vote, uh, to recognize what some of the key developments in the legal doctrine over the decades have been about this issue, uh, this amendment, and then also to identify what the cutting-edge conflicts and disagreements center on without actually necessarily resolving them uh, in putting together an honest statement that people around the country can rely on as an accurate account of the 15th Amendment, of its history, of its application in judicial decisions. Uh, we went through a number of iterations, uh, editing each other's work. And, uh, you know, to be honest, it was not a, a difficult uh, struggle in any way at all. I, I think that we both approached it in the spirit of the bipartisan commitment of the National Constitution Center and of this project. Um, and uh, we accommodated each other's requests for various kinds of revisions. Um, and it was actually, uh, you know, not a difficult process uh, when you have, you know, people that you can rely on and trust, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, disagree with them, but they're not partisan ideologues. They're academic, uh, academics trying to give an honest account of the history and the doctrine concerning something like the 15th Amendment. I'm so glad to hear that and was struck by how quickly both of you came to agreement. I think you produced the entire common statement in nearly a week, which was a really impressive testament to the mutual respect that you've just described. Nick, uh, you supervise this project. You also frequently supervise constitutional debates in partnership with the National Constitution Center through your great work at IQ Squared. Do you find, uh, as Rick suggested, that when you bring together top scholars of different perspectives who respect each other, that sometimes there are unexpected areas of agreement? Yeah, we absolutely do find that. And, um, you know, as you know, we've been uh, hosting and uh, partnering with you to present um, constitutional debates. And we find the best way to explicate some of these difficult constitutional questions is by getting the most articulate voices we can find on both sides of the issue to hash it out. So, it's, this is really a um, an outgrowth of that insight that you and I had jointly. That we'd um, the way we would present these issues most effectively is by hearing the best and most powerful voices on both sides. Uh, that's great, and I very much view our wonderful partnership for the debates as part of this broader process of uh, constitutional education that is now being expressed online so excitingly. Uh, listeners, as you listen to us talk about this great tool, please do go to constitutioncenter.org, click on our beautifully redesigned new homepage, and uh, you'll find the interactive constitution and can scroll through with us the first 15 amendments, which will be which are now live and, and uh, which will be launched on Constitution Day so that you can read along. Uh, Rick, uh, you also have separate statements of uh, dis disagreement. I think we're calling them sort of concurring opinions in the Supreme Court spirit about the 15th Amendment. Uh, yours is called the 15th Amendment, the right to vote today. And Brad Smith uh, wrote a uh, response. Can you summarize your areas of disagreement? Uh, what, 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 did you have, what did you both think was uh, not an area of common uh, consensus? Well, the areas that are not ones of common consensus, not surprisingly, tend to be the ones that are of ongoing controversy today, uh, so that uh, you don't have settled judicial decisions. Uh, you know, judicial decisions aren't the end of the matter by any means at all, but they do tend to provide um, something of an anchoring point for conflict and disagreement, and especially 
if decisions have become sort of firmly embedded over many, many decades in the law, whether you agree or disagree with the original, with the original decision, there's a certain settlement function uh, that occurs uh, over time. The areas that are of open controversy today are the ones that I think, not surprisingly, uh, you know, end up being sources of ongoing tension or disagreement. So, for example, uh, issues about the role of uh, race in the design of election districts today, uh, which is something the Supreme Court confronts on a fairly regular basis and where issues remain unsettled. Uh, debates about the constitutionality or the legitimacy of various regulations of the voting process uh, are areas where um, the law is still somewhat unsettled, um, in part because these issues had uh, not been uh, challenged for many years. There hadn't been as much controversy about access to the ballot box issues as there has been in the last four or five years. Um, but even I have to say, even in the areas of disagreement, uh, between Brad and myself, uh, you know, you, you can write these positions in a way that is respectful of the other viewpoint and understanding of the other viewpoint. Because I, I think of us, I don't think of myself at least, as writing to try to convince uh, people that they must see things the way I do. I want them to understand the positions as well as they can and as clearly as they can. And uh, I think that can produce, you know, concurring opinions differences of perspective on some contemporary issues that aren't, uh, uh, I don't know, as partisan and vehement uh, in their disagreements as you might hear expressed in certainly public discussion or more popular discussion of some of these issues. That is an interesting uh, distinction that I want to ask Nick about. Uh, This will sound uh, name-droppy, but I had the privilege of telling uh, a Supreme Court justice not long ago about this interactive constitution. I was, I was really enthusiastic about it, as, as I am. Uh, and I was describing how I marveled at the fact that so many of these top scholars who, who disagree in print so vehemently were able to come to consensus uh, relatively quickly. And this justice said, hmm, I wonder why that's the case. Here on the Supreme Court, you know, we have some really fierce disagreements and people will say, I think this, and the other side will say, I think that. And we don't always seem able to convince each other. So my question is, Nick, why do you think it might be easier to reach this kind of consensus on this online platform and on this educational tool than it is on the Supreme Court? Well, you know what I think is unique and magnificent about this project is, as you've described, separating out the non-controversial statements from the controversial statements. And that's quite unique. So, you know, I can't tell you how often I've read commentary about the Constitution that is presented as though it is the uncontroversial facts when, in fact, it's controversial and, you know, often I would say wrong or at least slanted in a way that I wouldn't have slanted it if I had written it. And we have two scholars of differing methodologies, ideologies, you kind of can't get, get away with that. They keep each other honest. And the way you've set up the project to separate out the non-controversial statements from the controversial, I think, is, has a really useful function of kind of clarifying the mind. What are the things we agree about and what really are the things we disagree about? So, you know, oftentimes you, um, you read these statements in other, um, you know, in other areas of commentary, and they're slanted, and they're not honest about being slanted. Whereas here you get the non-controversial and the controversial separated out. I think it's a really useful uh, model. 
That's a good way to put it. And of course, at the Supreme Court, all of the cases are open, uh, so they really don't have an opportunity to reaffirm the settled law, whereas here we have the privilege of being able to just review how much actually is settled. Let's start scrolling around a little bit. Listeners, please join us. It's constitutioncenter.org backslash interactive hyphen constitution, and you'll find it there. Um, There's a wonderful debate on the Fourth Amendment between two wonderful scholars, Barry Friedman of NYU and my colleague Oren Kerr at GW Law School. I love the common statement. First of all, it starts with a very arresting image. Imagine you're driving a car and a police officer spots you and pulls you over for speeding. He orders you out of the car. Maybe he wants to place you under arrest or maybe he wants to search your car for evidence of a crime. Can the officer do that? The Fourth Amendment is the part of the Constitution that gives the answer. That's great because remember, this is written, uh, first of all, for for high school uh, students and we want to have every student in America be able to familiarize themselves with these arguments. The common statement goes on to tell very beautifully and quickly the famous story of the writs of assistance and general warrants that inflamed the American Revolution. And then um, after just summing things up so well, Barry Friedman and Oren Kerr uh, disagree a bit about how the Fourth Amendment should apply to computers, technology, and the internet. Uh, Rick, uh, thoughts on the Fourth Amendment and the fact that this really is one where libertarian conservatives and civil libertarian liberals agree about a whole lot, as we're seeing uh, in uh, alliances between people like uh, Rand Paul and Patrick Leahy over NSA surveillance. Uh, Should we be surprised by some of the cross-cutting ideological alliances in this constitutional project? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think that, um, you know, on... uh, Certainly, the what would be traditionally called the conservative side of the spectrum, ideologically, uh, the libertarian uh, perspective has been gaining much, much greater traction over the last 20 years or so, I would say. Um, and of course, it harkens back to the original founding and the libertarian aspects of fear of government that were present from the very beginning. Um, but I think that that as a political matter. Uh, as represented by someone like Rand Paul, but not just him, uh, that perspective is becoming integrated more fully into American political debate and American political culture. Um, and it is a point at which libertarians on the left uh, and libertarians on the right, uh, to the extent these labels mean uh, very much here, you know, do find uh, some some common space and concern about the power of the state. Um, so uh, I don't know if I think it's um, surprising to see that reflected in the commentary from our academic commentators. But for example, on the Fourth Amendment, um, we have two absolutely first-rate people, Barry Friedman and Warren Kerr, um, who are regarded as first-rate scholars. I read what both of them say. One of them is my colleague, but I certainly read with great interest in terms of what they can teach me, um, whatever they write on these issues. And those are the kinds of scholars you want to be engaging in this kind of debate with each other about something like the Fourth Amendment. You want to know you're getting, uh, as Nick said, the best account from each perspective, including uh, accounts that are going to have an integrity about what the law is, what the doctrine is, what the history is. Uh, And so... um, you know, people who are serious and knowledgeable and have a lot of expertise are going to 
find areas of overlapping convergence more than a lot of people might think uh, who just focus on the most intense areas of current controversy. That is a good way of putting it and agree that both of them, uh, Professor Kerr and Friedman, can teach us so much. Nick, we, uh, that is uh, IQ Squared and the NCC, did a great constitutional debate on NSA surveillance. The resolution was mass collection of U.S. phone records violates the Fourth Amendment. This was uh, last year. Um, it was Alex Abdo of the ACLU and Elizabeth Widra of the Constitutional Accountability Center against Stuart Baker, the Homeland Security Secretary, and John Yu of the University of California at Berkeley. And as I recall, it was something of a route for the pro side that the audience felt after hearing the best arguments that surveillance did violate the Fourth Amendment. On the other hand, we had a rematch co-sponsored by the NCC, the Federalist Society, and the American Constitution Society, and there the vote came out in the opposite direction. So I guess my question is, why was that? How much of these debates depends on the debaters themselves, uh, on the audience, um, and how open-minded are people in really engaging these questions? Yeah, you know, I think these absolutely depend on the particular debaters you get and the particular way that you decide to frame the resolution. And as you know, these things can turn a lot on what is the, who your audience is. So even a different evening in Philadelphia may bring in a different group of folks who have different priors on the question. So I don't think it's so surprising to get a different result if you do the debate in uh, two different ways. Um, but, you know, I think I'd, as to this Fourth Amendment display, I just want to echo what Rick said. These are both fantastic scholars. Um, and Oren is, a, you know, co-blogs um, with me at the Vala Conspiracy. He's always very interesting on this stuff. The Fourth Amendment presents a really interesting methodological case study for this, for this model um, because uh, textualists, originalists, tend to be very on uh, the words of the Constitution and the original history of the Constitution, that is, uh, what the context was in 1791. Uh, on the other hand, though, the cases that are the most live cases and most interesting controversial today, like the NSA surveillance, are about incredibly sophisticated technologies that it would have been literally unimaginable to the framers. And so quite how you translate or apply the 1791 text to these amazing new technologies for wiretapping and so forth, is a, you know, it's a real deep problem for textualists and originalists, but you know, also for more living constitutionalists. Quite how do you apply this 1791 text to these very modern problems? And it's interesting to see Barry and Oren you know, apply their different approaches, first of all, to find their common ground, but then second, to explain where they disagree. Um, that is a, that's a good way of putting it. Rick, um, as I mentioned, the, I'm thrilled that the, the College Board is going to actually write uh, a curricula around the interactive Constitution that can be distributed to AP students and teachers. I had the, the, the thrill of presenting to 3,000 AP teachers in Austin this summer with David Coleman, the dynamic and visionary head of the College Board, the interactive Constitution, and we uh, played with it online and, and got people uh, jazzed up about it. My question is, uh, and it's a tough one, how can this complicated material of constitutional translation be taught to high school kids? Well, I, I think what the interactive uh, Constitution 
uh, does is it makes available as a starting point uh, for teachers themselves uh, or for their students if they want to send the students to the website um, some of the very best thoughts about what's settled about a particular amendment, uh, which will include stuff about its history uh, and the most important cases involving it, and then also with the concurring opinions from the two scholars with different perspectives, you know, some of the areas that are still up for grabs and being argued about. Uh, and I would think of it as a starting point, the most reliable starting point that's now out there uh, for getting up to speed with the sort of initial history, the text, the crucial cases, uh, competing perspectives that give a little edge to the issue. Uh, and then from there, um, those pieces on the website can be a launching off pad for going more fully into the issues that are of particular interest, like tracking down some of the key cases, if that's of interest, or tracking down more work by one or both of the scholars. Uh, or work that they may refer to in their, you know, these are relatively brief uh, synopses of viewpoints. Um, so I think what you have is something teachers can rely on is reliable, accurate, sophisticated, knowledgeable, um, that students can go to for that kind of starting point. Uh, but then I see it as a, uh, uh, a launching off pad, as I said, for delving more deeply into the areas that might end up being of particular interest. I mean, it's also useful if you just want to get a general perspective on parts of the Constitution that you've never heard of, never realized were there. Uh, you know, there are a variety of clauses of the Constitution that don't end up before the United States Supreme Court for one reason or another, and many people may not be aware that those clauses exist or what their significance is, what, what the purpose historically of putting them in was. So for those kinds of provisions, this is also a really nice, simple, again, reliable place you can go to educate yourself or your students about uh, even you know, less familiar parts of the Constitution that don't involve, for example, let's say the First Amendment. Um, so that's how I envision it at the moment. That's beautifully put. That reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, as Rick suggests, this is a tool for all students of the Constitution uh, from 8 to 80, and that includes you, our great listeners, who more than any other group is are hungry for the best arguments on all sides of constitutional questions. So I, I want you to go to this website and start to do what Rick said, dig in, start clicking, and then go deeper and deeper. And if you're uh, provoked by one claim, go read the decision itself and read the arguments on both sides. Look for more of the scholarship of the scholars, uh, the the uh, responsibility, the duty, as Lewis Brandeis put it, of lifelong constitutional education is our unique privilege and responsibility as citizens, and that's what this is trying to inspire. Rick mentioned that some more obscure clauses are not especially contested, and there were a few in the first 15 amendments, which are the ones that we're starting off with, uh, where both the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society agreed that only one scholar was necessary. There was complete consensus, both of the clause was uncontested and an agreement about who should be asked to write it. And one of those clauses is the Third Amendment to the Constitution. And both the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society agreed that Gordon Wood, perhaps the most distinguished historian of the uh, founding period, should write that uh, explainer. And I've just clicked to it now. Uh, Professor Wood begins by saying, 
the Supreme Court's never decided a case on the basis of the Third Amendment. It seems to have no constitutional relevance at present. But nevertheless, uh, some legal scholars have begun to argue that the amendment might be applied to the government's response to terror attacks and natural disasters and to issues involving eminent domain and the militarization of the police. Uh, Professor Wood said the amendment was written at a time when Americans and Englishmen believed that the question of quartering troops in private homes was of great and palpable significance because of the English dislike of standing armies. Uh, but uh, and he gives some of the English history and talks about the Seven Year War and all of the acts that Parliament passed. Says that Bost Bostonians really became especially inflamed by the ideas of standing army armies quartered among them, and that when British soldiers fired on a hostile crowd in the Boston Massacre. This helped spark both the uh, Boston Tea Party and eventually, arguably, the American Revolution. So in this very brief uh, explainer, we're seeing that this amendment, which we thought uh, didn't have special relevance, actually was at the center of some of the concerns about uh, civil liberties and standing armies that was so exciting to the American colonists. Nick, I, I know you've... Uh, Go, go to bed thinking about the contemporary relevance of the Third Amendment, but what's your, what do you feel like doing after hearing Professor Wood's really interesting uh, quick uh, explainer about its history? What do you want to know now? Yeah, I think it's fascinating to be reminded of the Third Amendment and reminded of its potential application to some of these more controversial stories. And there is a bit of a uh, tendency to overlook or forget about some of these clauses that are uh, not regularly litigated. I've actually argued in my scholarship that the Third Amendment is hugely important, that it's actually uh, a bit of a Rosetta Stone for the Constitution. Uh, so I've, um, I've tried to uh, explore quite who is bound by each clause of the Constitution, and particularly the Bill of Rights. I think it's extremely important to figure out whether these clauses are talking to the executive or the legislative or the judicial branch of government. Uh, and you'll notice that many, most of the amendments are written in the passive voice. They don't actually answer that question. This one says, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. And at this point, you might say to yourself, well, quartered by whom? Right? Who is doing the quartering? Who's being restricted by this? Uh, and then as we keep going, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. And so it's written in a passive voice. You might think we can't tell quite who it's binding, but if we give it a minute of thought, we can clearly deduce this is a clause about the executive branch. The president is going to be the commander in chief of the army. And this clause at the end, but in a manner to be prescribed by law, makes clear that Congress actually can authorize uh, some quartering, at least in time of war. So this is the second clause is not a restriction on what Congress can do. The first clause, on the other hand, is per, you know perhaps restricts both the, pres uh, the president and Congress in the sense that Congress can't authorize quartering in peacetime, can authorize quartering in uh, uh, time of war. Now, that's interesting in its own right, but I actually argue that tells us a little bit about the other amendments, too. So then we can start to look, when we look at the Fourth Amendment, which is also written in the passive voice, we can try to deduce who is it really talking to. I've argued it's binding the executive branch, in part by comparing the language of the third to the language of the fourth. So 
even these clauses that aren't so often litigated can often give us great insight into other clauses that are litigated and help us to understand their text and their grammatical structure. Completely fascinating. And that's a reminder, uh, friends, that when you're clicking on the Third Amendment, don't stop there. You know, go, go, follow the links. Hopefully you'd find uh, Nick's uh, articles, and that'll just send you down a, 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 a very rich path of constitutional education. Now, we were talking about standing armies and the Third Amendment and the interactive constitution, but that's not all. The, the interactive constitution has two parts, and now is the time for me to tell you about the second one, uh, which I think we've mentioned on this podcast before. We call it Rights Interactive, and you can find it on the, on the Interactive Constitution landing page. So basically, go to the homepage, click on the Interactive Constitution. You'll get to constitutioncenter.org slash interactiveconstitution. And then it says, if you want to know about the origins of the Constitution and how it relates to constitutions around the world, click here. You'll then get this totally phenomenal tool called constitutionalrights.constitutioncenter.org. Um, which allows you to do two things. You can click on any provision of the Bill of Rights and see its historic antecedents, and then you can trace the spread of that liberty across the world and compare it to constitutions globally. So I mentioned that because we're talking about standing armies and the Third Amendment. Um, if you click on to constitutional rights, uh, the writing uh, part of it, and we go to the Second Amendment, which was also centrally concerned about standing armies, you'll see all of the historic sources of it in the revolutionary era state constitutions. And if you click on many of the constitutions like New York, uh, you'll find the New York Constitution of 1777. I'm clicking on it. It talks about the militia of the state uh, as peace uh, as well as war shall be armed and disciplined, um, which is basically a protection against standing armies. But by contrast, if you go to the Pennsylvania uh, minority statement for the Second Amendment, you'll see it says that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves or for purposes of killing game. It's more of an individual rights uh, provision than a collective right of the people to be immune from uh, standing armies displacing state militias. So this is just another amazing way to really dig deeply into the history behind all of the amendments um, and to make up your own mind about what you think their meanings are. Rick, how do you think our listeners and how do you think student, students can usefully uh, use this historic tool to really dig around and uh, try to figure out what the original understanding between the, behind the text was? Yeah, this is a fascinating tool. I don't know if there's anything like this. I'm certainly not aware of anything like this that allows you to go into a particular provision of the Constitution uh, with respect to the Bill of Rights uh, and uh, simply, you know, with a fairly straightforward uh, map, uh, click on the amendment and learn about its predecessors, be able to pull up the text of the predecessors, be able to look at the various versions uh, of the proposal before it became embodied in the Constitution as an amendment to the Bill of Rights, uh, and, and kind of, uh, you know, read for yourself about the, the origins of particular provisions. Um, so I think it's a it's an amazing tool uh, that's put together in such an effective way. And and one of the things I want to say is uh, I want to pay tribute to the people on your team, Jeff, who have put together this website because so often these kinds of websites become incredibly difficult to use. They're filled with 
too much information or information that's not in the right form or an accessible form. Uh, but since I've been uh, playing with the actual website uh, now that it's live, I'm so impressed with how easy it is uh, to work through the information that's available there, how natural it is the way that material is organized, uh, and just that the, the level of visual presentation um, and uh, the connection between different parts of the website is just really excellent. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, like many websites, something that you, you know, have to play around with a certain amount to learn all of the wonderful secrets that it holds. Uh, but it's a very straightforward, very easy to use, uh, website and, uh, and it makes, you know, available at your fingertips, the kind of history that, uh, you know, people would have to have spent many, many months in a library, uh, pursuing in a number of years ago. So it's, it's a wonderful innovation, I think. Thank you for those wonderful words, and I'm delighted to uh, call out the phenomenal uh, members of our team who helped create this. Uh, Zach Elkins at the University of Texas uh, was our great partner in creating Rights Interactive. He's the head of Constitute, which is the leading uh, database for global constitutions, and with the NCC Constitute, and uh, we created this first stage, which allows you to look at the historic antecedents and the international implications of rights. And then Danielle Evans, our senior fellow for constitutional studies, uh, supervised this project in the most masterful way and just did a spectacular job in ensuring its accuracy and simplicity. Scott Bomboy, our great web editor, was the technical mastermind uh, behind it and worked with our uh, partners at Three Spot to, to make this as clear and substantive as possible because we're, we're, this is, we're not trying to oversell this. As Rick, you said so beautifully, the goal of this is just to make this thrilling information available in as beautiful and accessible way as uh, possible. And of course, Nikandra Yanachi, our great uh, 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 podcast uh, guru, uh, was was central as well. And we hope that all these podcasts are going to be up on the interactive constitution under the amendments in which they're relevant. Let us play with one international comparison uh, because it's so much fun and it's so relevant. So I'm now on the constitutional rights, uh, dot constitution uh, uh, part of the website. I'm clicking on rights around the world. Um, it says start exploring and I'm clicking on collection of evidence, which is the right protected in the fourth amendment, uh, protecting the people against unreasonable searches and seizures that lights up countries around the world that have a version of the American fourth amendment. And then I'm going to click on to Japan, which is a uh, country in which I'm interested right now. And when I click on Japan, I find that the Japanese constitution has a Fourth Amendment that looks almost exactly like ours. It says, the right of all persons to be secure in their homes, papers, and effects against entry, searches, and seizures shall not be impaired except upon warrants issued for adequate cause and particularly describing the place to be searched and the things to be seized. 53% of the text matches according to this tool, and that is because General MacArthur, when he wrote the American, rather when he wrote the Japanese Constitution uh, after World War II, basically cut and pasted the American Fourth Amendment and put it into the Japanese Constitution. By contrast, if you click on the Russian Constitution, you'll find that it looks nothing like ours, but is a kind of creepy prohibition against spouses having to testify against each other and is only 3% of the text matches. Nick, 
The question of the relevance of international law to American constitutionalism is very hotly contested. Justice Breyer will be here on Thursday to discuss his new book about the role of international law in American constitutional adjudication and help us kick off the interactive constitution. Uh, when we designed this website, we wanted to avoid that controversy by emphasizing the export of American rights rather than the import, rather than the import of international rights uh, in the other direction. But what is your sense, as someone very familiar with this debate, about the uses of this part of the website that allow people to click on the American Bill of Rights and compare it to global constitutional provisions? Well, I think it's, of course, fascinating, and uh, scholars will enjoy looking at it, and interested citizens will enjoy looking at it. It's a, you know, it's a great and useful tool for um, all of us to understand our Constitution and to understand its how it compares and contrasts with constitutions around the world. Now, the controversy that you're referring to is the sort of controversial uh, technique of uh, trying to read our U.S. Constitution in light of these uh, other um, uh, international sources of law. Uh, Justice Breyer, in particular, has been known to do that, to look to international law when trying to interpret, figure out the meaning of the U.S. Of US constitutional provisions. Uh, famously, Justice Scalia disagrees with him about that. And, you know, it's actually a bit of a microcosm of their larger methodological debate. So Justice Scalia is a textualist and an originalist. He thinks the project of reading the U.S. Constitution is to figure out what these words would have meant to an educated reader circa 1791 when they were written. And for that project, of course, the state of you know, French law circa 2015 can't possibly be relevant. Um, on the other hand, Justice Breyer has a you know, much more functionalist approach to constitutional interpretation. He's trying to figure out not exactly necessarily what these words would have meant back in the day, but rather uh, what's the sensible way to interpret them so that they'll work best. And as for that project, yeah, you might be interested in seeing how, um, you know, how different provisions work in other contexts in other countries. So you can see how this little debate about the use of international law is actually a window into the, a much bigger methodological debate about quite what our project is here, quite what we're trying to do when we arrive at this text. Uh, that's a great way of putting it. Well, it is time, gentlemen, for closing arguments on this podcast. Rick, we've started with the first 15 amendments, but we've got a lot of work ahead of us because over the next two years we have to create explainers for all of the provisions of the structural constitution as well as the remainder of the 27th amendments. What is the importance of studying the structural constitution? And as students and citizens begin to use the interactive constitution, uh, you know, how, how should they think about the connection between the 15 amendments that they can already read about and all of the exciting material to come? Well, you know, when the Constitution was written, what the framers cared about was the structures of government that they were creating primarily. The Bill of Rights were, of course, added on as amendments to the original Constitution. And I do think today many people tend to think of constitutions as primarily designed to protect individual rights or to protect potentially vulnerable minority groups through an equal protection type of clause. Uh, but in fact, 
uh, constitutions are, are primarily designed to actually create a government, to create the structures of government. And the framers certainly were of the view that getting those structures right was the best guarantee for creating a society that would be, you know, prosperous, that would have freedom, uh, in which political leaders would be accountable to citizens through elections, uh, and that it's getting these structures of government rights that is just as important or more important than the protection of specific individual liberties, because... Uh, if you can get the structures of how politics and policy should be made or should be performed right, that's a, probably even a better vehicle for trying to, rele- to realize the underlying values of the American Constitution than the kind of negative checks courts can provide through enforcing bill of right type of provisions. So... For those of us who are particularly focused on structures of government, as I am in my work, the original Constitution with the ways in which it divides power between the president, between Congress, between the two houses of Congress, between the federal courts and these other parts of the national government, and then the way it divides power between the national government and the states, and all of the development of that structure over time is an extremely important thing for people to understand that they often give too little emphasis to in understanding how the American Constitution works, what it was designed to do, uh, how the Constitution itself was designed from the beginning to structure government in such a way as to hopefully make it more likely that the system would realize the underlying values of the American constitutional order. Um, so uh, I think any divide between the Bill of Rights and the structures of government side of the U.S. Constitution is a very artificial divide because uh, they're all informed by the same kinds of values and principles and underlying aspirations. So I'm very excited to see the development of the structural side of the interactive website, which uh, which will have actually a very deep history to it because those provisions have been Uh, fought over from the very beginning. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Nick, what do you hope that students and citizens can look forward to as the structural constitution becomes live and online, and how should they enjoy and edify themselves with this remarkable educational tool? You know, I quite agree with Rick. I think structural constitutional law is hugely important and uh, at least as interesting and important as the study of the Bill of Rights. It's also the focus of my work and my teaching and so forth. You know, one thing I noticed looking at the uh, Bill of Rights provisions that are done already is uh, I did take a look at the Tenth Amendment, and uh, um, I forget who it was, but the scholars writing about the Tenth Amendment point out that actually many people thought the Bill of Rights was superfluous uh, back in the day when they were uh, ratifying the Constitution. Um, and more than superfluous, they thought it would potentially be downright harmful. Uh, this was a you know, view expressed by Alexander Hamilton in particular. Uh, the danger is if you enumerate a bunch of rights, uh, maybe you're implying a scope of federal power that actually wasn't given to the federal government by the original Constitution. So Hamilton was concerned that if you start enumerating rights, you'll actually be um, implying greater federal power than really exists. 
And it's just really interesting and worthwhile to bear that in mind as you go back and read the original Constitution and the structure that they set up. The framers, you know, as Rick pointed out, the framers thought the primary protection of individual rights was going to be from constitutional structure and getting the structure right, and in particular from limiting the scope of federal power. So, you know, the, um, they weren't, they were not worried about uh, violations of freedom of speech or freedom of the press or freedom of religion exactly because they didn't get, think that they gave Congress power over those things. That's in the original Constitution. They thought Congress had no power, and therefore it would, it, there was no need to carve out those rights. Now, of course, our constitutional doctrine has played out quite differently from that, but that was their prediction back in the day, and it's you know, worth remembering that as we study those provisions and as we read through the Bill of Rights. Thank you so much, Nick Rosencrantz and Rick Pildes, both for joining us today and for your spectacular work in supervising and overseeing this truly thrilling project. Uh, Nicandro Yanachi, our great web guru, said just before we started that he'd been looking through it and he called it intense but thrilling, a battle of ideas that matters. I think that puts it very well. And we are so looking forward to working with both of you, Rick and Nick, over the next two years to complete the interactive constitution. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm looking forward to it myself. Thanks, Jeff. We're looking forward to it. Great. Thanks so much. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We also want to know what you think of the podcast. Send your questions, comments, and suggestions to editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, a thrilling new podcast featuring lectures and debates presented live here at the National Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. The most recent episode features a conversation on the future of the conservative movement with Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute, and Rehan Salam, executive editor of National Review. Don't miss it. We the People is a member of the Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com Panoply. Finally, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely entirely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. I can't imagine a more inspiring educational tool than the one we've been talking about today, the Interactive Constitution. If you are similarly inspired, please consider becoming a member to support our great work, including the Interactive Constitution and this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. And please join us again next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, happy Constitution Day. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.